Robbie Knox here, landlord of the Moon Underwater, and I have a very exciting announcement to share with you. Have you ever found yourself listening along to the podcast thinking, hmm, I wish I could experience this with my own eyes in the real world? Well, you're in luck, because very soon the Moon Underwater will be returning to the other realm for a special live show. As it's such a special occasion, we thought we'd invite an equally special guest along. Joining us on the night to create their dream pub is the Edinburgh Comedy Award-winning comedian Ahir Shah. It's taking place on Sunday the 7th of April at Moth Club in London. Tickets are on general sale now. Search Moon Under Pod on socials, head to our page and click the link in the bio to get your tickets. We look forward to seeing you there. Haven of the later souls, body of the scheming men, long wood hull of the landlocked boat, starlight in the back mirror gleaming, sunlight in the fresh poured glass, moonlight sparks from the embers riddled, and the moon underwater. Look at you! What's happened to you? Well, I'm I'm soaking dry. You're soaking dry, aren't you? I mean, you'd look so dry. Yeah. I'm worried that if you sort of move at all, your clothes will just disintegrate. Yeah, it's happened before. Have you been out in the bleaching rays of the third sun? <laughs> yeah, I have. I have. God. But what weather we're getting in the realm? But it's so nice out the back, isn't it? Mm, yeah, out the back's lovely. It's an idyll. It is an idyll. And have you noticed the new plantings that I added to the uh, around the gazebo? The placebo gazebo, it's called, isn't it? Or only ever place placebo. Yes, and it's not actually a, a gazebo. No, people just see it and think, well, that kind of works like a gazebo, so it has a kind of placebo effect. A lot of people are quite sort of sceptical about the whole thing, but you say, look, if people feel like they're in a gazebo, what does it matter if they're not in, <laughs> actually in a gazebo? It works just as well. And they're getting to listen to Placebo. Yeah, fine. I saw Placebo at the Louisiana. They're, they're a decent band. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I've. Um, it's sort of a hybrid, what I've I've planted. It's sort of midway between a lily and an oak. Yeah. <laughs> which, um, you know, you, you think it wouldn't work, but it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you like the lily in the house? Uh, no, I for two reasons. Firstly... I bet I can guess the reasons. Well, tell me then. Odour and those powdery things that fall off. Correctamundo. Two yeah. points to Robindor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they smell like cat piss and uh, you can't get the um, the pollen. You can't get the pollen out. It stains badly. Yeah. Like saffron and turmeric. I say turmeric. but Good. Well, in- enjoy that. Thank enjoy you. saying it. Thank you. Say it again if you want. <laughs> turmeric. Hey, lovely. Sounds good, isn't it? Yeah. That's how Robin pronounces turmeric. But Robin... Yes. How are we going to wet not just your appetite to chat, yeah. but also you? Because I'm genuinely worried you're just going to flake away into the winds. Well, I think it's time for a bloody glass of wine. Oh, a lovely glass of wine. Well, who better 
to apportion the wine correctly using correct traditional instruments and with notes on flavour, nase, and also uh, the design of the wine. That's the new thing. Yeah. What's the design of the wine, they're saying? Hashtag wine design. And I think it's time to welcome him in because he's been hammering on that door for well, three or four hours now. Uh, it's Freddie Bulmer from the Wine Society. Hello, Freddie. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Oh, well, Robin's in a state, as you can tell. Yeah, he does look it. Yeah, don't mm. sneeze. or I mean, he may well fly into a billion shards. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie, it's a delight to have you here. I must admit that the last time we met, Robin and I were in wine. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, so you guys came to visit me uh, last time at uh, my Moon Under Water, the Wine Society. Yeah, I can't believe how, how fast the time has gone. That was last summer, yeah. and I think I've just about recovered. <laughs> yes, the, the word robust was being thrown around quite a lot about the different wines we tried. I seem to remember that. Yeah, there are a few um, slightly searching descriptors uh, being thrown around the place. Well, I think the thing that happened is the more wine we tried, the more our lack of knowledge and way of describing them was evident. <laughs> no. No, I think it's only when you when you look back the next day that you realise that at the time, yeah. you know, you go, God, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, We did lean pretty heavily on the word robust. It was doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. Well, it's robust. Makes perfect sense, I suppose, doesn't they it? They were yeah. quite robust wines. One was a white burgundy, which we both enjoyed, Ooh, didn't we, Robin? white burgundy was stunning. Mm. Well remembered. Mm. Yeah, that was good. We had a good little lineup, didn't we? There was uh, a couple of Chardonnays, I seem to remember. Yeah, one one being the white burgundy. Gosh, what else did we have? We had some, there was a couple of reds. I mean, I, I think you've captured there the sort of what confuses people about wine, because you've said we had a couple of Chardonnays, one of which was a white Burgundy. How is that also a Chardonnay? Well, that's the thing. You see, the French don't make things easy. So as much as you might walk through the supermarket aisles and see wines from somewhere like Australia or New Zealand or the States with uh, the grape variety very clearly labelled, in this case, Chardonnay. In France, they don't necessarily, or certainly historically, think that the grape variety is the most important thing. It's all about the place. Ah. What the vineyard site gives to the wine. So the grape is merely their, their vehicle through which they kind of uh, tell the story of the place. So that's why you'll have the, the sub-region, let's say, of Burgundy in this instance. That must make a very confusing spreadsheet because you've, yeah. you've got your grape <laughs> column. I mean, you don't want to merge cells. Well, God, no. You must be joking. There's, there's, there's not a formula in the world that can tackle this. One. Yeah. So, uh, Freddie, tell us about the Wine Society, because it's quite an unusual organisation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So it's uh, ultimately, it's a very historic wine business. Uh, it's a cooperative company, and it's coming up on 150 years old. So uh, it was founded back in 1874. And I always think the best way to get an understanding of what it is today is actually to, to kind of understand how it started, really. So back in 1874, there was the last of the great exhibitions in London, where things were, were shipped in from all over the world to be, to be shown. And uh, one of those things was a barrel of Portuguese wine, which was ultimately forgotten about. And this was held at the cellars of the Royal Albert Hall. So this barrel of wine sat there. And the Portuguese were pretty hacked off about this. So uh, they got in touch with the government who'd organized the fair and said, look, you know, we ship this over for your exhibition and nothing has been done with it. Can you please see to it that it's made use of? 
so there was a chap who was put in charge of its uh, its disposal, if you like, who had the most appropriate name for the time, Major General Henry Young Darricott Scott, which is ridiculous. But he basically got a group of friends together. They all chipped in to pay for the wine and then they drank it over a series of lunches. So the idea was born then that the people who were consuming the wine had an equal share in its ownership. And that same idea still continues today. So it's now um, a business with national distribution. It's mostly online now, which of course it wasn't initially. And it's all about basically having a really wide spread of wines on offer for members. Uh, you know, anyone can become a member, but in order to get that equal share, you you sign up, you pay your share price, 40 pounds, and then um, you're in and that's it. And it's it's just about providing members of the wine site with bloody good wine. So yeah, it's it's a really nice thing to be a part of. It's a great company to work for, and it's it's a great company to drink from, um, <laughs> which I've found to my detriment. <laughs> well, as listeners will know, when uh, Rob and I s- sort of uh, gave a debrief of our trip, when uh, we were first invited to the Wine Society, I was imagining, you know, deep mauve leather. I was imagining panelling, those sort of broadsheets on sticks that they have in sort of members' clubs, various libraries. The reality of the Wine Society was far more modern in that it's yes. in, in a warehouse in Stevenage. Yes, exactly. Well, it's as modern as the 1970s uh, in Stevenage can can be, really. Um, yeah, so it did start life in the Royal Albert Hall, ultimately, and then dotted around London a bit in its earlier years, but then, yeah, moved to Stevenage in the 60s. So it's far less romantic. Makes much more sense. Great access to the A1. You know, that wasn't really <laughs> yeah. something which um, was important when it started. But uh, yeah, it's not the most romantic building to look at, for sure. And I do often uh, find it interesting to hear what visitors' first ideas of the Wine Society were before they were doubtless shattered when they do visit. But um, what we lack in uh, beautiful premises, we make up for in a bloody good selection of wine so hopefully uh, you weren't entirely disappointed John oh I mean it's quite something to behold can you give us some stats uh, how much oh, wine do, is there at any one time bloody loads if that's a good enough stat we've got around 180,000 active members customers around the country now which has well that grew a lot through the pandemic actually um, the pandemic was a really it was obviously a bloody interesting time, a really um, difficult time, but everybody was at home wanting to have a drink. So things grew quite considerably for us, um, which was which was handy, you know, don't want to sort of um, play down the pandemic too much, but it was, it was very useful. So around 180,000 members, um, we've got on the website around 1,400 wines at any given time uh, from huge number of different countries that changes fairly frequently the number of countries because you know we might have something that comes in from georgia let's say but then when that's gone we might have something that comes in from romania instead or we might have you know a few bits and bobs that run alongside each other but certainly around 1400 different wines so it's it's a solid offering and the key thing is i mean the really important thing about the business is that the prices are really fair because we're only selling to members so it should be really a win-win for for people it's um yeah it's a good thing to be a part of i think this is i always feel like i'm selling it when i talk about it but it's just because it's actually really quite good it's great 
<laughs> There's over a million bottles in the warehouse, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Easily. Wow. Some of those shelves are so high. Yeah. Actually, this is a development since you guys came and visited. So do you remember the big warehouse where you yeah. walk in and you look up and, and then you keep looking up and then you're almost falling over backwards looking up? That's now small compared to the new warehouse. What? Whoa. That's kind of nothing now. So we've just had this massive new warehouse built, which is sort of that plus another half again type of thing, which is terrifying but great and it shows that people are still buying lots of wine which is fantastic you know it's uh i, I think um a promising sign people have been drinking wine for thousands of years and they're still carrying on doing it yeah that's great do you think um i mean obviously you mentioned the pandemic being a factor but do you think that people are just uh, are also just becoming much more interested in wine now like is, is it a growing trend that people kind of are, are kind of looking to kind of find out more rather than just getting the you know the second uh cheapest <laughs> yeah yeah that was always the trick yeah. wasn't it it's just to order the second cheapest off the list yeah. it looks like you know what you're doing um i think so and i think actually the pandemic helped that as well you know a lot of people were at home with time on their hands that they didn't have previously and we clearly saw people gaining an interest in in wine more than they ever had done it's something that for a lot of people they have for a long time perhaps thought oh you know i wish i knew more about wine i know i enjoy a glass of wine every now and again but i've never actually stopped and read anything about it that was the opportunity to do so and just anecdotally i had a lot of friends who did a wine exam over the pandemic because they kind of always fancied it and now they could i like the idea of someone sort of discussing what they did in the pandemic <laughs> you know their, their friend took up yoga and their other friend yeah. did like learn how to paint or learn Spanish just saying I just really got into wine <laughs> yeah. just really I started to take my drinking seriously yeah, yeah. finally yeah and there, no, it certainly seems to be the case though a lot of people a lot of people did which is good and also I mean we've all seen this movement towards eating more locally in terms of you know where your meat comes from where your vegetables come from and being a little bit more in touch with what you're consuming in general and I think that does carry across to wine so uh, yeah I've certainly seen people becoming more engaged in that sense well, no doubt we'll fire some uh, wine questions at you over the course of your visit here to the Moon Underwater. But before we start to fill your pub, I want to ask, is it a pub or is it a wine bar? Good question. It's well and truly a pub. I love, love a proper pub. It's something that I've always enjoyed and I've got a lot of memories linked to pubs. And I think a wine bar has its time and place, of course. I think, though, working in the wine industry when it's about a bit of downtime and a treat, it's quite nice to step away from from the wine bar and uh, enjoy a really traditional pub. So yes, there's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> if I haven't made that clear enough. What do you mean by traditional? What sort of pub are we talking about here? So for me, the ideal pub is in the middle of the countryside, remote, uh, peaceful, beautiful, low ceilings, beams, fireplaces, you know, the sort of place that is best reached after a long walk where you get there and you step through the door and you feel like you've earned the right to be there. So it's this sort of tr very traditional English countryside pub where it's a bit of a, a bit of a haven or a bit of a um, place where you go to collapse and enjoy a well-earned drink. I mean, that's not to say that I don't enjoy a more lively city boozer type place. But I think for me, the sort of pub that I get the most out of is a really peaceful affair. Lots of wood furniture, 
fireplaces, lots of fire hazards, therefore, as a result, <laughs> um, and real ale on tap, uh, on draft, I should say. And the most important thing, and you can sod the rest of that off if there's no sparklers. That's the most important thing. Yeah. You've got to have sparklers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody's got to write some sort of dissertation on this, surely, <laughs> because there's a point that somewhere in the country, there's a point north to south where they stop using sparklers, and I don't know where it is. Do you guys know? Well, we, it's idea? been much contested in the moon underwater. Of course. We've had a lot of correspondence about it. But there are pubs. There is a pub near me, the Shirkers Rest in New Cross, where you can ask for a sparkler. Which I like. Yeah, this seems to be a fairly new thing. There's a pub in Hartford. It's called the Cross Keys. I can't remember. But uh, they do the same thing. They have Timmy, Timmy Taylor's landlord on. But you can have it through uh, either a sparkler or no sparkler. Yeah. It's up to you. Which I think is great. Didn't we find the most southernmost pub to have a sparkler, Rob? Yeah, I think someone might have... I want to say Suffolk or something. I'm not sure. I want to say Cornwall. Do you? Interesting. So where are you from, Freddie? Is is this a... Are you from the north? The north. My formative <laughs> years were up north. As yeah. much as I don't really have the accent. But um, And by formative, I mean the years that you start drinking. Yeah, so this is this is, this is is why you spot the sparkler is in your DNA. Exactly, yeah. But also, you know, as as probably most of us did when when we started to drink beer at 16 let's say <laughs> even you know with a meal obviously to make it legal um we would probably all drinking fairly flavorless lagers i suppose and it wasn't until i got a bit older that i really started to appreciate cask beer but uh where i grew up in a town called pickering in north yorkshire i used to work behind bars when i was around 18 19 and fairly quickly learned that cask beer is an art form you've got to look after this stuff you've got to treat it really really well and i think that appreciation made me kind of look at it in a in a new light but actually anecdotally that uh, town of pickering when i was growing up and this probably um had an impact on my drinking habits for a small yorkshire town had 12 pubs in one high street nice <laughs> which was pretty phenomenal most crap is there a crawl you can do Along those 12? Uh, oh, yeah, doubtless. But it really is a crawl by the end of it. <laughs> and I think, unfortunately, most of them are now closed, which is a shame. But um, the sort of pubs where you wonder how they stayed open for so long in the first place. Uh, so they did well. Thousands of people listen to The Moon Underwater every week and we can help deliver your brand message to targeted audiences. So if you're to be part of The Moon Underwater and connect with engaged audio listeners, get in touch. Just email sales at audioalways.com and find out more about how podcast advertising and sponsorship could work for you. That's sales at audioalways.com. Well, let's start to uh, furnish your pub. I'm going to ask you first for two draft options. Um, but I want to know, have, is <laughs> is it possible to get good wine on draft? That's a good question. John, that depends on your definition of good, <laughs> I suppose. Because uh, if, if good is the wine doing the job, i.e. successfully coming out of tap and uh, tasting fine, 
then yeah, sure. My hesitation is that I'm yet to see any wines on tap that off tap would be good wines. What's the best wine you can get in a box? <laughs> that's a great question as well you can get some really good wines in boxes you know oh, can you it's a real yeah it's a real misconception actually that bag in box wine is crap there's some really good stuff it's just i think down to this misconception that oh you know it's all not such good stuff that more people more wineries don't put their wine in bag in box because it makes environmental um, sense doesn't it absolutely yeah yeah it's much more uh recyclable it's much lighter weight basically per sort of liter of wine than glasses so it's, you can transport more of it yeah exactly uh it also the wine keeps really well so if you're the sort of person that wants to just have a glass of wine a night but you know you're afraid of opening a bottle and it going off uh the idea with a bag in box is that basically the the last glass in there should be as good quality as the first even if it's been um you know the first glass was three weeks ago so uh so it's actually there's real benefits to, to bag in box for sure um, but yeah, I, I mean, maybe there's a little way off before, uh, you know, Chateau Latour are putting stuff in bag in box, perhaps. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe environmental pressure will, will force them into it. But, um, uh, there's no, there's some good kit for sure. Well, let's have your two draft options, please, Freddie. Absolutely. So the first of these two was very easy and actually contrary to having just talked about growing up in the North, this is very much not a Northern beer. This is from a brewery called Anspach and Hobday, who are in Bermondsey, well, originally in Bermondsey, on the Beer Mile. Fantastic little craft brewery. And my first choice will be their London Black Nitro Porter. Nice. Which is absolutely delicious. It's crack for beer lovers. And it's, it's I think the best way to describe it is it's Guinness with personality. Got a lot of flavour. This is very interesting, because I, I just did an interview with a person called Victoria Spooner, who works at the Fellowship Inn. And she was telling me about how much she loves this this beer and how they also have the... How am I, how do you say it again? Ab, snack, and hop... Day. Um, <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, sure. And spatch and hop day. They also do an ale there, uh, like their best bitter. Yes. And in the Fellowship, it's called Cooper's Bitter because Henry Cooper used to, to box there back in the day. Oh, well, I never... But yeah, they, they but it's a lovely brewery and they do a fantastic Christmas beer as well, which we had with Emma Inch uh, over the Christmas period, which was very nice. Now, I'm never very good at pronouncing it, but that'll be one for one. I think it's Pfeffenusus Stout. Oh, that's I the think, one. Yeah, Christmas yeah, beer. yeah. And it's that is delicious. Nice and and Fudge and Hobday, I think, are a, a great brewery for dark beers in particular. It's kind of where they made their mark in the first place when they started out. I'm actually picking this... Uh, a little bit for for Phil Wang as well, because when he was on here, he meant to pick this beer, forgot what it was called, and then just chose their porter instead, <laughs> which is about, uh, it's like 7% or something. It's quite a strong one. So um, you, when you know that, if you listen back, you can hear the hesitation in his voice when he hears how strong the beer is. <laughs> Um, but this is the one, but I'm picking it sort of, let's say 5% for him, 95% for me, because it's delicious. And I find myself quite frequently looking on this very handy online map that the brewery have created, which shows all the pubs in the country that have it on tap and planning, uh, pub stops using that because it's delicious. So John, as a Guinness drinker, mm. you weren't necessarily a fan of this, were you? Well, I'd have, I have I tried it. Isn't it the one that they had in, what's that pub called? The Secret Pub. 
Yeah, the galley the jackalope. The, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm really good with words today. That was, uh, I think, an ink stout. They got rid of Guinness and replaced it with one of these. I've yet to approach a bar, ask for a pint of Guinness, be told we don't do Guinness, but we do have this local stout. I've yet to find it an improvement on Guinness, but I am more than willing uh, to believe that Anspach and Hobday have absolutely nailed it. So this is the thing. I was with you absolutely until I tried this. And what's amazing about this beer is how they've basically replicated the texture. Because Guinness is all about the texture, right? Mm. You know, that, that creaminess. And they've managed to replicate that. So you've got the same texture as Guinness, but you've got far more flavour. Right. Uh, it's 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 yeah it's amazing it's kind of like probably how guinness would have tasted the first time you tried it yeah mm. and you went oh wow okay this is something a bit different and uh, then the more you drink guinness the the more your palate i guess gets used to it and then you try london black and you you get that guinness for the first time experience again you break your sort of lose your guinness virginity for the second time is there something special about the way it's made with the, the nitro thing yeah so this is i now I'm not a brewer, so I don't know uh, the technicalities of it. But what I do know is that currently you can only get it on tap because basically you have nitrous, I guess, nitro gas that um, is used instead of um, CO2. Uh, So it's much smaller, much finer bubbles, which is what gives it the, the texture. Guinness have just released their nitro cans into the UK where you, you have the little nozzle attachment mm. on the top. Yes, I've seen that, yeah. Have you tried it? Does it work? No, I saw them in Tesco and I just stopped drinking and I walked past and was like, the drinker in me went, oh my God, it's here! <laughs> and then I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> This is how they get you. I'd been sort of following the progress of the... Because there's been, I think, lockdown did sort of speed up the process of Guinness trying to get these more homebrew... Not homebrew, but home draft style. So yeah. they tried with the um, the, the nitro plate... The, not the nitro, the something plate, that thingy plate thing. The, yeah, I know what you oh, mean. the vibrational plate thing. The, the oh, vibrate Guinness yes, vibrational plate. <laughs> And then the nitro came out in Ireland, but about four or five months before it came out over here, and it's just landed in Tesco. So, I'll, I'll, I will never get to experience what it tastes like, but I can, uh, I can imagine, I can imagine it, I can see it, I can see it stat there. Have you tried the uh, alcohol-free Guinness, which I'm currently drinking? Yeah, it's absolutely superb. It's super. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It's, it has to be the best alcohol-free beer out there in the supermarket. I think it might be the greatest invention on earth actually it's so good (laughs) what's your second choice so for my second choice i figured i really do need to pick some sort of really traditional yorkshire real ale Uh, and i racked my brains on this one i I was thinking you know timothy taylor's uh landlord is a great beer it's a fantastic beer but it's been done i'm sure it's been picked countless times uh on here Black Sheep was the second choice, which I think is is delicious. And actually, I've been getting more into Black Sheep recently. Uh, and having then gone back to Landlord, Landlord tastes quite sweet. It's a bit weird now. But my second choice is going to be uh, Theakston's Old Peculiar, Ooh. which is a fantastic beer. For anyone who's not had it, it's quite an unusual style. It's a sort of fairly dark style, but it's not 
you know, it's not by any means kind of Guinness dark. It's sort of a deep cherry color in the glass. Um, it's quite a fruity beer. It's fairly strong off the top of my head. It's probably around 5% or thereabouts, five and a half maybe. Um, but one of the best pints I've ever had in my life was actually not that long ago up in Yorkshire at a fantastic pub called the Lion Inn at Blakey Ridge, which if you guys haven't been, I couldn't recommend more. It's, it's so my idea of a, of a perfect pub because it is bang in the middle of the countryside, perfect for walking and so on. But they sell more Theakston's Old Peculiar than any other beer. They've got quite a lot of beers on cask. And of course, the crucial thing with cask is making sure that you sell enough of it to keep it fresh. So you will not get a fresher pint of, of Old Peculiar anywhere. Um, and yeah, I was up there a few weeks ago, went for a walk. The sip of the Theakston's Old Peculiar after that walk was just phenomenal. Such an incredible beer, so full flavored, so generous and such a delicious texture as well. So that is going to be draft option number two because it's bloody good stuff. What is it? It's 5.6% Old Peculiar. So there we go. It's fighting lotion. It, yeah, that it is. It is, but it's sort of um, it's well, it's sort of Yorkshire fighting lotion stuff, isn't it? You know, it's. I, th- I feel like there's a classier fighter that drinks uh, <laughs> or peculiar, maybe. Yes, it's sort of giving you a bit more sort of. Uh, it's giving you a bit of st- stout will, and, yes, and a that's pure nice. heart. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yes, you're fighting, but honourably. Yes, very much so. Ansbach and Hobday London Black, Theakston's Old Peculiar, uh, on draft. I am just a pub. We head now into probably what was quite a difficult decision. Your your bottles and or cans. I'm assuming yeah. it's not cans of wine. <laughs> well, no. Um, I haven't gone for cans on either of these, actually. And the first isn't a wine at all. Really? Which, yes. Doesn't that disappoint? Well, but then this all makes sense eventually. (laughs) (laughs) I have a plan. So number one, actually, is... Well, I was thinking, okay, what what, what is one of the most memorable beers that I've ever had? Uh, And actually, it was a beer where I don't remember at all what it was other than a very refreshing lager. And, you know, going back to what I was sort of saying before about my ideal pub being the sort of place where you've done a big walk or something beforehand, because I think that first sip of beer just tastes better when you feel like you've earned it. I feel like uh, I feel like nothing is more refreshing and more perfect when you really are thirsty through something that's, you know, been brought on through exercise than a really crisp, fairly basic lager. And so I was thinking, you know, French stubby bottles, that type of thing. I feel like drinking from a stubby bottle is ultimate refreshment for some reason. In the same way, I have this theory that the most refreshing water that you can ever drink is at two o'clock in the morning from the bathroom sink in a mug. And I don't know Uh, why, but it's a combination of things. And I think the mug is integral in the same way that the stubby bottle is integral. You have to be very, very careful about what your plumbing setup is if you're drinking from the bathroom tap, though. You do. You you do, yeah. If you've got a water Um, tank, then you're basically drinking the sort of stewed juice of a thousand drowned mice. Well, that's, come on, that's that's an urban myth, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's it's just, not. that's what my parents used to say. Don't but drink the tap only... upstairs. Drink yeah, it's true. Day. Not that we had it upstairs, but... No, I, I, surely that's only with the hot tap. I mean, come on. Yeah. No, it's you've got to be very careful. If you've got a water tank, you shouldn't do that. And if you've got Victorian plumbing, you shouldn't, because they use lead, lead solder in the pipes and actual, and lead pipes as well. 
Maybe this is just cracked exactly why it's the most refreshing <laughs> water. Maybe <laughs> we've nailed it. Mouse bone juice is actually quite refreshing. Yeah. Really good for you. And good for your teeth as well. That's why we only brush our teeth in the bathroom, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so I was thinking, okay, I've got a few memories of of uh drinking incredibly refreshing, fairly nondescript supermarket stubby bottles, but that's not specific enough. And I thought then the first choice of uh, of my bottles is going to be Braybrook Brewery and their Keller Lager. And Braybrook, uh, a brewery based just outside of Market Harbour, and they bottle in the same sort of shape as uh, Stubbies, but proper size. So you get the Stubby experience in a 330ml bottle, which I think is great. Oh, wow. The ABV of the Stubbies is in your 26 to 3.2 sort of zone. So does it reflect that in that way as well? Well, no, <laughs> but then, you know, you can't have it all, can you? Um, <laughs> um, but the thing that I really like about these guys is they're lager specialists, and there's quite a few, you know, modern craft breweries that have set out to try and make a lager, but unless it's what you're really focusing on, it's very hard to do it well. And they saw a bit of a gap in the market for that, in this country with, you know, independent small breweries and and not being any at the time that were really focusing just on lager. So they set out to do that and they do it bloody well. Um, so uh, their, their lagers, I think, are some of the best in the country for sure. Um, so it's a bit of a no-brainer. You get the, the stubby, refreshing experience, but actually a lot of quality and flavour behind it. So Does it have that kind of Pilsner-style kind of lightness to it, a kind of very pale yellow colour as well? Is it that kind of... Yeah, well, they have uh, a Pilsner that they do, which is actually maybe Ooh. I'll go for that. Maybe I'm going to change it from a Keller Lager to the to the Pilsner because the Keller Lager I feel like is a little bit sort of full of flavour. The Pilsner is just so crisp and light and lovely and delicious. So, I think, Robin, <laughs> you've twisted my arm inadvertently, and I'm actually going to go with their Pilsner. But ultimately, I'd be happy with any of their lagers because they are great. I've never had a bad is one. Is this the New Zealand Pilsner from Braybrook? That's the one. Yeah, because I, I think they brew it using New Zealand hops, hence the New Zealand influence. The design of the bottles is very sort of minimalist. They almost look like sort of samples you would see in a sort of chemist or in a laboratory or something. Yeah, it's a little bit sort of jarring in a way to see that. that yeah, I mean, do you see what I mean with the stubby shape, but the bigger size? And it's a little yeah. bit jarring, I guess, to see it bigger. But maybe it takes you back to uh, your first stubby experience as a as a wee boy, you know, with, with 16-year-olds proportions let's say this is going <laughs> terribly um and uh, <laughs> and uh you know picking up your first stubby beer uh, and now you get the whole experience again as a grown man because that stubby is grown man size it's perfect it's a win-win i like the tagline of the art of lager that's mm. nice yeah exactly it's not an easy thing to do lager because um ultimately to lager is to store and part of the process is brewing it and i mean as you guys no, doubtless anyway, but brewing it and, and storing it um, to fully go through the lagering process, which is uh, basically a period of time where your stock is tied up, your cash, sorry, is tied up in stock, um, which is sitting in the brewery unreleased. So it's very tempting to force things through and rush the whole process. Um, but these guys do it properly, which is which is great. Speaking of storing, they've got a, a winter lager, which has four months of lagering. But I love the name. It's called Radiator Doppelbock. Nice. Doppelbock. I had one one of the nicest beers I've ever had from Beer Merchants, a great company. 
Uh, but it's, it's a German uh, pilsner called Flotzinger. It was just amazing. It was like the ideal of lager. <laughs> it was like a mountain stream. A, a, fi- <laughs> a 5.2% mountain stream. This is the great thing with lager that I think lager could probably do better than any other beer style is depending on the the situation and how you're feeling and what you've been doing leading up to that first sip, any lager can take on the form of the most perfect lager. Yeah, you're right. Which is great. And hence the the kind of casting my mind back to just fairly vague uh, supermarket-owned brand stubby bottles. It doesn't matter that they were fairly vague owned brand stubby bottles because actually at the time they took on the form of the most perfect lager that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, I mean, as ever in the moon underwater, we're drinking the memory, not not the drink, but... Uh... <laughs> Very exactly. much so. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what's your second bottle, please? No, the second is a wine. I thought I couldn't go through all of this without picking a wine. That'd be very unfortunate. And I started to rack my brains as to, you know, is there a bottle of wine that was a formative bottle for me that I should probably put uh, under the spotlight here? Uh, And there are a few things that came to mind and they're all very wanky and pretentious. So I just thought, what's one of the most delicious wines that that I've had recently? that I would happily drink any opportunity. And the first grape that came to mind is Riesling. I know that um, you guys, uh, uh, you know, have been into Riesling. And um, I think it's just such a fantastic grape variety, which can lend itself to pretty much any situation. Uh, And there's such a variety of styles as well. You've got your really crisp, dry Rieslings, very refreshing, very high acid, uh, all the way through to very, very sweet examples as well. And the crucial thing is that Good Rieslings will be all about balance, whether they're really, really dry or really, really sweet. The flavors should be balanced there. So if you've got a Riesling with loads of sugar, you need to have lots of acidity so that it's still really fresh. Um, and one producer that came to mind is is one called, um, uh, well, it's Prum, JJ Prum, who are one of the great names of Riesling in Germany. And uh, they're, they've got an Auslaser Riesling, which is, Fairly sweet style, Velena Sonono. It's delicious, but this is the one that Ed Gamble picked. And so I'm not going to pick it because I, I can't order the same thing off a menu as, as uh, somebody else. <laughs> so he's buggered that one for me. So instead, I'm going to pick an Austrian reasoning because I think they're particularly underrated. We don't drink enough Austrian wine in the UK anyway. Uh, and their Rieslings in particular, I just think are superb. Um, they're generally much more towards the dry end of the spectrum. You don't get so many sweeter Austrian Rieslings like you do German Rieslings. But there's a winery uh, called Brundelmeier, family winery, um, not so far from Vienna, about 40 minutes drive uh, west of Vienna. And they have a vineyard on this really beautiful hillside. And the hill's called Heiligenstein. So I'm going to pick their 2014 Heiligenstein Riesling, which is just such a delicious drink. And these wines can last forever. You know, if you're somebody who is interested in buying some wines that you want to lay down and age and drink over the next 20 years, and this is exactly the sort of thing to buy. And it's not crazy expensive given how long it will last as well. So yeah, Brundelmeier Heiligenstein Riesling. going to go 2014 because it's so delicious now. And uh, yeah, I think if there was one bottle of wine, it'd be that. Oh, foaming <laughs> at the mouth here, foaming at the mouth. 
Superb choice. Uh, so, so far, Freddie Bulba's remote country beamy pub that's best reached after a long walk. When you've earned the right to be there and it's full of fire hazards, we have <laughs> Ansbach and Hobday London Black, Theakston's Old Peculiar, Braybrook New Zealand Pills and Brundlemeyer 2014 Stein Riesling. But before we continue in part two with Freddie's Pub, we must head over to Robin to expand our tiny little minds in the Moon Underwater Pub Quiz. Okay, everybody, pens out, eyes down. It's time for the quiz. He played for Zimbabwe, but he was born in South Africa. I know Alaska is bigger. That wasn't the question. Put your phone away. Right, Michael Jackson's Funky Monkey had been deducted five points. Thanks, John. Welcome to the Moon Underwater Pub Quiz. And this week, I'll be asking you questions about films and TV shows that were translated or retitled for French-speaking audiences. D'accord? Oui, ça marche. On y va. Okay, so question one. Which American film was released in France with the English title Sex Friends? Was it A, It's Complicated, B, friends with benefits, or C, no strings attached. Sex friends. Question two. Which TV show was translated into French with the title L'Agence du Risque, the agency who takes risks, or more literally, the All Risks Agency? Was it A, the Sweeney, B, the A-Team, or C, Miami Vice? (laughs) Sorry. Question three. Which TV show was translated into French with the title Au Frontier du Réel, At the Boundaries of Reality? Was it A, The Twilight Zone, B, The X-Files, or C, Steptoe and Son? (laughs) So there we go. Those are your three questions en français. Beautiful pub quiz there from Robin. Uh, we bid you adieu for now, folks, uh, but do remember to send all your correspondence to john at moonunderpod.com. But also head over to moonunderpod.com where you can find out about supporting us on Patreon because every single king's pence that you send our way goes into the upkeep of this crazy old tavern. It also gives you access to Behind the Cellar Door, our monthly bonus podcast, advanced tickets for live events and also access to the uh, Moon Underwater Facebook group, The Social Club, which is a fantastic place to be and share your thoughts, feelings and reflections about all things pub. We'll see you back in part two very shortly. Thousands of people listen to The Moon Underwater every week and we can help deliver your brand message to targeted audiences. So if you want to be part of The Moon Underwater and connect with engaged audio listeners, get in touch. Just email sales at audioalways.com and find out more about how podcast advertising and sponsorship could work for you. That's sales at audioalways.com.